you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. I'm Andrew Berry, General Manager of the Cleveland Browns, and you're listening to the Huddle and Flow Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Huddle Flow Podcast. I am Steve White here with my dudes, Thomas Warren, our producer on the ones and the twos, and my main man, Jim Trotter. JT, we are past the wild card round. A lot of, a lot of good stuff coming up. Also, Jim, we're going to be joined by Rams offensive tackle, Andrew Whitworth, who went up there and showed what he's about as the Rams went out there and put it on the Seahawks to advance to play the Packers in Lambeau. That's, that's not going to be that fun in that weather, but so good to have Whit on. Um, we got a lot of ground to cover here, Jim. Yeah, no question. I'll, I'll say this too about Wit. You know, Steve. Um, I've always said, and and longtime NFL reporters like yourself know this. If you ever want to get the pulse of a locker room, if you ever want to know what's really going on or have a good conversation, you go over that corner of the locker room where the offensive linemen are. They are the best. So that's my tip for all you young NFL reporters out there. If you want to get it done. Go meet those guys. Go get to know those guys. Um, they are the best, bar none. And what's funny, though, Jim, is during COVID, where the teams kind of select who the media speaks to, they're not giving us offensive linemen. We, you know, we might get them once every every six weeks. And maybe because they know that these guys are the most honest, they're the best, they know what's going on. So like, okay, let's not have them talk to the media. Let's, let's have them talk to the quarterback. Let's give them the canned answer every Wednesday. Yeah, man, they are. They're the best, and and Andrew Whitworth is one of those guys. Yeah, Andrew Whitworth is like the best. So this yeah. this is going to be a great conversation. But Jim, before we kind of get to the playoffs, you know, we've got all these coaching changes, and you and I, of course, have been talking about diverse candidates and how you know we're hoping these owners 
really give you know some some black and Latino, Asian, whatever general manager and head coaching opportunities. Well, this weekend we came across a situation. Jim was the first one to address it on Twitter. While you know we were, I was kind of working the phones as he he was too. But there was a report out this week how Eric Bieniemy failed or, or struggled with his interview with the Falcons, something like that, right, Jim? They had a poor yes. interview or something. And we had Mike Loxley on a couple weeks ago. Um, we've had people on saying we are going to take the bad interview excuse out of the equation because we have prepped them with mock interviews with Bill Polian and Nick Saban and all of these people. But yet, here we go with this. So you put out a tweet saying, okay, so so here we go with this with this bullshit again. And you 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 gave what Patrick Mahomes and Michael Vick said about Eric Bieniemy. Meanwhile, I'm having conversations with people in the in the Falcons hierarchy and people who are involved in who are in the interview room telling me this is bullshit. This is not fair to Eric. He could very well be our next head coach. And if he's not ours, he could be somebody else's. And if this narrative is out there, it, it's it's not fair to him. And it's not fair to a lot of people because we also know this is a go-to excuse that a lot of teams use to shit on coaches of color. And I'm glad you called that out. I'm glad the Falcons were very honest. Um, and the people who were in there were very honest about what happened. But, Jim, the, the fact that this narrative, again, that it popped up so freaking brazenly and so quickly and that people in, in our occupation are so quick to repeat it, which is something like we, we, we went here back channel discussions or this and that, but we don't go out there and report that crap without verification. And what is it? What good does it really do in either way, shape or form anyway to report it? So it, this, is, know, this is not cool. No, Steve, it, it angered me. I'm, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you because um, I think it was Friday night or Thursday night. I don't remember what night it was. But anyway, some folks started hitting up us about it because I hadn't seen it and um, didn't know about it. And then I listened to the radio interview where this reporter said these things, not only about Eric, but also about Robert Sala. Robert Sala, right. In his interview with Detroit. And I got angry um, because, number one, I had not heard this. Everyone that I had talked to um, had said how Eric has interviewed so well. And, in fact, as you talked about, um, minority coaches in particular have been going through mock interviews for the last few years to try and be prepped for these moments to make sure that um, that can't be used as an excuse. And so, again, I was angry. And so the, the dilemma for me was, do I call out this reporter by name or do how do I address this? You know, and I didn't want to give oxygen to this reporter. Right. Um, to make it sound like it was more true. So I said, let me just run what people have told us, at least on on Huddle and Flow. Matter of fact, why don't you hear it for yourself? Here's Michael Vick. Here's Patrick Mahomes talking about Eric Bieniemy. The one thing about Eric Bieniemy, he ain't taking no ish. His his presence is felt when Eric Bieniemy walk into that Kansas City Chiefs meeting room. His presence is felt, and when he talk, people listen, and, and he got the whole you know coaching vibe about him and uh, head coaching vibe about him, and I, I think he's going to be very successful. 
the first thing you always hear about him is how he holds everybody accountable, and that's that's true. I mean, from the top down, from the first player on the roster to the last player on the roster, he's going to make sure that you're that you're handling your business and you're doing whatever it takes to to betterment of the team and to make the team better. And then I think the work ethic is something that's truly important that that people don't talk about as much. I mean, he's a guy that's in the facility. It seems like all the time is men must sleep here. I mean, I never am in the facility and don't see that guy in here. And so uh, uh, he relates to everybody. He's he's very involved in the offensive game planning and and making up plays week in and week out. And I think he's someone that he'll be able to go in and set a culture no matter where it is and be able to hold people accountable and, and really hold them to the standard of being a champion. I started making calls to other folks, including at the Falcons, who are involved in the interview process. And my point essentially was, if you don't address this, then you are doing Eric Bieniemy and other minority coaches a disservice. If he interviewed poorly, then, then, then confirm that. If he didn't, then you need to say that he didn't so that we can shoot this down and stop this. Because this goes to the heart of, for me, this it's character assassination, you know, when you do something like this. And look, we know the history of this league and the history of this country in terms of you know, um, what's been said about the intelligence of black men, et cetera. And um, there is nobody that I know that has ever talked to Eric Bieniemy and not come away impressed as it relates to football and his approach to leading a team and leading men. And I, again, I'm, I'm choosing my words here, but I was just angry because again, the context of it all, knowing the climate that we're in and how over the last few hiring cycles, Coaches of color have been passed up. I think only three of the last 20, the previous 20 to this year went to um, African-Americans or, 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 or people of color. So in that climate, for you to put out something like that, which is not true and was not true, um, it just makes it that much harder for these men to get a fair shake. And so, as you said, you and I are not going to tolerate it. Um, we're not going to, we're not going to, you know, be a party to it. And where we can, we're going to address it and call it out. And that was one of those instances. We're just, we're just not going to let it happen because, again, we've heard that narrative for too long. And here's the other thing. When's the last time you heard, oh, that well, that white coach didn't get that job because he interviewed poorly? Uh, the first, the next time will be the first time because you don't hear that stuff. And, and it, it's just, I mean, that's the stuff that just sets our hearts on fire. And, again, we, we're just not going to have it. So that that's just not it. And, Jim, so on a different note, the Houston Texans. Okay. <laughs> There's a whole lot going on because uh, along with the stuff that happened with Eric Bieniemy and the phone calls I was getting, I think my phone must have rang more from people with teams. When I say people with teams, I'm talking about executives, assistant coaches, whomever saying, what is going on with the Texans? The way they are conducting their business is – Amateur might be, I think I'm sugarcoating the sums I said if I say amateur. But some of the things that we're hearing, of course, we're hearing the reports about how Deshaun Watson and JJ Watt, and maybe some other players had addressed ownership, like, hey, Eric Bienemy's a guy here. Hey, Jack Easterby, who's kind of the quasi president, whatever he is. You know, let's, you know, you you guys, you know, maybe that's not the guy you want to rock with. We've seen reports that the search for a search firm recommended some GM candidates of color and those were just completely dismissed to the point where there was another report that said, I think ESPN reported it, that they were negotiating a deal with Omar Khan 
of the Steelers to become their GM while flying uh, Nick Casario, the Patriots, down there to do the deal. Like, like what's going on? And nobody from that organization has stepped outside to kind of clear the air either, Jim. So, look, someone's going to take that head coaching job. But it, it's – it's I mean, just the people we spoke to over the weekend, I can tell you, it's, it's a mess right there now. And that, that head coach better to go ahead and do some culture cleanup because the way the paradigm is, is shaped down there is, is does not seem like it's overly healthy. Yeah, but I don't know that you can do culture cleanup unless you start at the top. Because True. at the top is where this is allowed to happen. So um, for me, it was just another confirmation that all of this focus, every, you know, every year everybody talks about the Rooney rule, the Rooney rule. And this year the Rooney rule was adjusted and you've got to interview at least two minority candidates, et cetera. None of that matters if in your heart you are not going to do the right thing and choose who you, whom you believe to be the best candidate. And look, this thing, you could make the argument, was set up from a year ago where the Texans wanted to hire Nick Casario. He couldn't get out of his contract with the Patriots. And now we roll around to this year. And as you say, they bring in search firms. They talk to Tony Dungy. They interview these minority candidates. And then what do they do? They end up hiring the guy all along that they wanted a year ago. So either own it, in my opinion, which makes this more palatable, but don't try and play people for a fool. Oh, the um, charade, the charade. Yeah, You're right. The charade is stuff that's a joke. That's a joke. Absolutely. And that's what bothers me most. It's like, look, if you have someone you want to hire, then just own that. I, I can't, I may not like it. Others right. may not like it, but it's your right to hire who you want if you have someone you like. But don't have this charade, as you say, and don't put, you know, waste everyone else's time who think that you're being authentic or genuine in terms of your search for um, the best candidate. So as you and I have talked about before, where I say all money ain't good money, this is one of those jobs where if I'm a head coach, head coaching candidate, I'm not so sure I want to go in there unless I know that I truly have an opportunity to create the culture that I envision for my team to be successful. And right now, I don't know how you can create that under these um, circumstances. Um, we've got a special guest we want to get to. because Well, you know, wait, Jim, before we even get wait. to that guest, Steve, we have even more crazy shenanigans with organizations. Let's not forget the Eagles at this moment. Oh, man. Who have fired Doug Peterson. But we had, we had heard that that could be a possibility. We did. But this is where I go back to this, Steve, and, and I will always come back to this. The culture of an organization is set at the top. And I just think it's funny who gets who gets second and third opportunities and who doesn't. Howie Roseman, the GM of the, of, of the Eagles, is about to get an opportunity to hire his third coach in seven years. That's unprecedented. I, I, you know, to my knowledge, off the top of my head, maybe it's happened before, but that seems unprecedented to me, particularly in today's game that someone would get an opportunity to hire three head coaches. Um, but you said in seven years, Jim. It's not like seven three years. over 20. That's what three I'm saying. Three over 20 is different than three over seven. That's what I'm yeah, saying it, to so, you. So Chip Kelly, Chip Kelly, Doug, and now the third. And my point is everyone, or I shouldn't say everyone, but there are a lot of people who are beating up on Howie Roseman and saying he's got to go this, that, and the other. My point is that's easy. That's low-hanging fruit. My focus would be on the person who keeps empowering Howie Roseman. And that's the owner, Jeffrey Lurie. Because if you see a problem and you know that the drafts have not been great under, under Howie of late, um, 
You're now hiring your third head coach. So there's a culture problem, clearly something going on. The coach is not allowed, as has been reported, to choose his own staff, um, those sorts of things. There were disagreements even a year ago where ownership and how he wanted changes on the staff and Doug Peterson was reluctant to do it. So for me, Howie is low-hanging fruit. I think you got to ask the owner, why do you continue to empower this person? Because the results speak for themselves. Well, it was interesting listening to Jeffrey Lurie's comments, Jim, where he basically said, I'm doing Doug a favor. I mean, I'm listening to it. He's like, Doug didn't deserve to be fired. Huh? Then don't fire him. Then don't fire him. Jim, he said that. And And then he says, in a nutshell, that I'm letting him out of a situation that he really didn't want to be in because we're operating this way. And he really doesn't want to operate this way. So we're going to let him go. So Doug's going to get another job. He just won a Super Bowl. You talk to people around the league. Doug Peterson's a good coach. I, I, I really like him. I mean, personally, I really like him and everything. So, again, the Eagles, someone's going to take that job. But they better get a, a Matt Rule, Kyle Shanahan type of deal. That ain't happening. That, hey, six years, man, because it's – a. I know in Philly they don't want to hear about the process after what happened with the 76ers, but that was going to be a process. It's going to be a process. It ain't happening. It ain't happening. All right. Well, Jim, you know what is happening. Andrew Whitworth is happening. Okay, this is a guy who was on the shelf for eight weeks, towards MCL, PCL, comes back for the playoffs, for the Rams, starts. John Wolford's a quarterback. Jared Goff has to come in. Rams end up winning the ball game anyway. Jim, you know the respect that Andrew Whitworth carries among his peers and people like us in the NFL. Walter Payton Man of the Year nominee for the Rams. Um, just, just one of the realists. So let's bring in Rams offensive tackle, Andrew Whitworth. All right, Jim, now we are joined by one of the best to ever do it, one of the best guys in the NFL, and that's Rams offensive tackle Andrew Whitworth. Whit, thanks for joining us, man. Hey, appreciate it, Steve. I'm, I'm glad to be here. All right, well, we know you're coming off the big the big win up in Seattle. I mean, what, what, what an impressive win. But the thing, you know, and I thought was really cool, it was a uh, – I think it was a Twitter picture of you and Jared Goff, right? Jared's got his thumb coming off of surgery – you're just coming off the big knee injury. You had a whole bunch of guys gut check it through that game. Just what about the way you had so many guys put so much out there and then to put together such a convincing win? Well, I think that's, you know, really this time of year, playoff football, it, it's really about um, imposing your will and having the opportunity where the team that really wants it and really uh, is able to go and convert and, and play fundamentally good and, and just execute the plan and, and not turn the ball over and, and play together and for one another usually has the most success. I mean, this time of year, it's really about that grit, that determination to win. And, you know, everybody's good. Everybody's got talented players. And so I think it's one of those things that when you just find a way to win on the road, you know, second time you've been up there in a couple of weeks, uh, it was just one of those feelings where we all felt together and, and unified. And it was just a, it was a great feeling to feel uh, to go out there and play the way we did as a team. You know, with that, obviously, um, the familiarity between you two, Seattle and Los Angeles, uh, being division foes, 
but I was truly surprised at the way you guys dominated that game because traditionally when you two play, it's closer. That one, you guys dominated it from start to finish. Was there something different in terms of preparation or approach or even how you decided to attack them in that game versus maybe other games? Um, I think really it was that we realized it probably in the first matchup um, defensively how well we could play them and, and uh, how well our defense has played all year. Um, you know, we knew how we had an advantage there with our defense. And so in the first game, I really thought we were able to run the football well, played really well as far as executing to start the game, uh, had a nice lead, kind of similar score um, in the first game against them at our place. And, you know, I get injured for the first, like almost the last play before the half. And then that second half, we're able to hold on to the lead and still play well defensively and offensively. I think we scored one time, maybe maybe kicked a field goal or so, and, and we're able to hold the lead and win. And then I thought really the second time we went up there, we didn't run the ball quite as well at first and then had some critical moments in the game there, a turnover down there in their area uh, when we had a chance to take that same kind of halftime lead. And then also, uh, you know, not converting down like the one or two yard line. Uh, another stand made by them. So just kind of some moments in the game where it's like we had chances to create that separation and allow our defense to do what it does, but we didn't find a way to figure it out the second time. And so I think we felt confident going into this one that if we played physical football, we converted some red zone attempts. Um, our defense was going to do the job they've been doing all year and we were going to win this football game. And I can say it's one of the more confident. I, I know for myself, this is my ninth time in the playoffs. This is uh one of the most confident I've ever felt going into a football game that uh, we knew we could execute and we knew we could go up there and win. Okay, but wait, we, we've got to get into this because it's kind of a theme for the playoffs this weekend, right? The Ravens went and they trespassed on the Titans logo, right? The Steelers, the Steelers, the Browns got mad at Juju, talking about the Browns are just the Browns. And Jared came out and said, oh, yeah, they were smoking cigars and celebrating about winning the division title. Did that did that real did that really play into it? Because clearly, I mean, that stuff that stuff strikes a chord. Yeah, I I do think that um, we really felt with just kind of how things went and and some things going on that week. And Jared, you know, obviously that was the week he also hurt his thumb. Uh, just some things in that game, we felt like we really gave the game away more than they took it from us. And um, I, I think for us, it was like the celebrating and how happy they were. I think that we went into that game thinking, even if we win this game and win the division, this is more than likely with the playoff scenarios, the team we're playing again in a couple of weeks. And so I think we went into the game with let's win it and let's give everything we have, but you know, let's handle it the right way. And I think we felt like over the last couple of years, we've won this division. And so I, I think that we were, you know, not, not happy with maybe a little bit, uh, a little bit too happy. <laughs> just win a division title. And, and so, uh, you know, it, it, nobody hesitated to make sure they knew they got to hold on to those one and done t-shirts that they got to wear two weeks ago. Uh, they, they can keep those and go on vacation with them and, uh, you know, enjoy them all they want. So, uh, you know what I, I Steve, look in my 15 years, I've, I've won a bunch of division titles and, and, uh, was one and done. And I know that's not a fun feeling. When you've been around this league a while, I'm curious as to, to how unusual it is for a team to remake its image so quickly as you guys did. You were known for your offense when Sean came in, particularly when you went to the Super Bowl. And offensively, you guys might not be putting up the points you did in the past, but people are starting to look at that defense as being the bedrock of, of this team. I wonder from a player standpoint, how unusual is that for an identity to be re remade so quickly? 
it's really that culture is where it starts with everything. And so everything we do is so kind of surrounded by how do we win, not as how does one group perform well or the other. So I think for me, really, it's like, um, you know, what's been strange is we've moved the football really well on people. Like we've had lots of drives, lots of being able to just, it's not like you're going three and out all the time. You're moving the football. It's, it's like we haven't figured out a way to put up seven points as consistently as we used to. You're doing well, but you're frustrated that you're not putting up the points that you're used to putting up. And so it's it's been frustrating offensively in that regard. But from a team aspect, we're so focused on what it takes to win that I think guys are just enjoying it just as much that, hey, you know what? We're going to play power football. We're going to play great defense. We're going to execute on special teams and we're going to try and win football games. You know, when you call yourself uh, the ancient one, it's interesting to me, you know, you're 11 years in Cincinnati. You appeared in six playoff games, I believe, didn't win any of them. And you come here and and I think people always try and assign what a player's motivation is when he's in the NFL. Is he playing for the money? Is he playing for the fame? Is he playing for this or that? But players ultimately want to win. They want a championship. So can you speak to what it's like to 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 go 0 and 6 in your first, you know, playoff run there and then finally get to L.A. and finally have that success where you start winning in the in the playoffs and, and it's expected. It's not hoped for. I'll, I'll never take away in this league when you win a football game in the NFL. You know, I think some of these teams that are perennial losers will, will attest to this. You, you've done something. I mean, winning in the NFL is not easy. You know, it's just one of those things where it's like, man, you're like, what am I going to have to do to get over the hump here? And then my first year here in, in L.A., we have a great first year, make the playoffs again or a top seed and lose our first playoff game against Atlanta. And so you walk out of that one, you're just like, man, what in the world is it that keeps happening where I can't figure out a way to help my team win? But I'm still really proud of, you know what, if people look back and go, what what did they think of, what is the first thing to think of the Cincinnati Bengals as a franchise when it comes to winning um, over the last 20 years? Most people aren't going to have a lot of great things to say about it. But when I was there, six out of the 11 years, we went to the playoffs and we won the division championship multiple times. When I come to L.A., what do people say about the Rams over the last 15, 20 years since really the Super Bowl that they had in the early 2000s? It's like, you know, not a winner. And all of a sudden I get here and we've been to the playoffs three out of four seasons. We're averaging one 11 games a year. I mean, I was still extremely proud of that even though I hadn't found the way to get over that hump. And so really in 18 to finally get that playoff win against Dallas, as I always tell people, like, I, I don't remember a thing about the game. The only thing I remember is that, that we won that game. And that, that, like that memory and that feeling was unbelievable. Um, that I think it made me just so much more relaxed this past week. I was just, I mean, that was the most calm I've ever been for a game. Um, just because I think it just, it's like that monkey's off the back and it's like, you've already won playoff games. You've been in a Super Bowl. Now it's just, how do you lead? How do you get guys around you to go win and understand how big of a moment this is? Hey, I want to go back to something you said about this weekend's game, you know, how you never felt more confident or comfortable or whatever going in. Did you know ahead of time it was going to be Wolford? And then when you guys had to make the change, when John got hurt, when he had that stinger, you know, how comfortable were you with Jared knowing that that thumb was what it was? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as, as Sean had said, he had kind of made the decision and, and kind of let us know, go through in the week, how we were going to do things. And because uh, we just didn't know exactly where Jared was and stuff with the thumb. And so, yeah, I mean, we, we kind of knew and, and um, I, I thought, you know, really 
the way Wolford's shown that he can come in and play, guys were confident and and uh, and I think you know if anything really it was it was more uh, you feared for Jared when he had to come in. He felt like, hey, I think my thumb's solid, but you know what? What if the snap comes in funny, or what if you know the ball just hits his hand the wrong way? Well, you were going through it, Wit. I mean, you had that big Frankenstein brace on your knee. You hadn't played in what six weeks? Yeah, man, it was uh, it was crazy, man. It was really cool. Like uh, Doc, uh, Doctor Elitrosh, who obviously is an amazing doctor, and, and Reggie Scott, our our uh, medical director and VP, who's who's the man. They, you know, they they both gave me a big hug before the game, and and uh, I think it's pretty emotional for them too, just to know what I'd been through and uh, to know how severe, obviously, tearing my PCL and MCL was, and and to have an, an opportunity to to play in that game eight weeks from from doing that. Uh, it was pretty emotional. I, I was I was really more emotional though, strangely, uh, before the Arizona game and before the Arizona game because I knew that we kind of had discussed whether that was a possibility of playing, but we knew that was probably a little little pushing it, a little dangerous probably just because we didn't know how stable everything was exactly because it was really that was my first week touching the grass uh, uh, at all, and so. It, you know, it's like one of those things. I was just real emotional for that game because I was like, if we lose, like, I, I don't, you know, I'm going to feel like I failed a little bit because my goal was to get back and help us get to the playoffs or play in the playoffs, you know. And so I was really emotional for that game, but I was strangely calm uh, for this one. It just, I felt good. I felt like I was ready. And uh, it was cool, though, to see Reggie and, and Dr. Elitrosh's emotions of, of uh, just being proud and and uh, how much it meant to them that I was able to pull this off and they got to be a part of it. Well, what are you going to be like this weekend when you're playing arguably the hottest team in football? You know what? Uh, that's when uh, the emotions have to come out and, and uh, you know, Big Papa has to get his guys going. So it's, uh, it's one of those things I love. I love uh, energy bus and, you know, uh, being that guy for us. And so, I, you know, that's my thing. Walkthroughs. It doesn't matter what it is. I, I try to be the energy bus and tell all the guys I'm driving and they can hop on. And, uh, you know, that's my thing. Is the young guys always ask, you know, like I have a thing that you know, our team talks about all the time. It's called uh, sprint to the hashes. Anytime we start a new drive, I always try to be the very first person that touches the hash. Um, and I've had Cooper and, and Cup and a lot of those guys, the young guys, they always laughed and asked why I would do those things. And, you know, to me, it's really it's about setting the tone, being a veteran player. I think sometimes you can get calm and relaxed too much, you know, to where um, you almost the game's really easy, but your emotions aren't as involved anymore now because you're just kind of playing. And so for me, it's really when I get a chance to set the tone and just be an energy source and the guy that guys can feel like, hey, man, you know what? Like, that's my big brother. That's my dad running out there. Like, I feel good. You know, look at my kids. Like, when dad's strong or dad's confident, they're confident, right? And so uh, I know those guys look up to me. So it's just in those moments, it's important to me to be somebody they can be confident in. And I think that uh, that's why I love it. So this week will be nothing, nothing less. Uh, you know what? Firing them up, letting them know they can do all the things they want to do. Uh, they just need the passion, the energy, and the want to. You know, what they talk about the cold being such an advantage at Lambeau and that sort of thing. I mean, you played in some cold weather games in Cincinnati. How real is that in terms of its impact on a player? You know what? It's it's one of those things that the only real time I feel like you feel it now as much is TV timeouts. The game stops so much. So you go out, you know, kickoff, and it's like you run out on the field to go, and then you realize, oh, man, they're stopping the game. So then you're sitting there for those three couple, three minutes, like just, you know, out there in the middle of cold winds blowing on you, it's freezing. You know, you almost like tighten back up because you're just kind of standing around. 
I don't know that that I, I really think it's true that it dictates the game as much. I mean, because you look at it, most of the time in those situations, it's also it's the team that's at home and they've got home field advantage. Um, so they're already at an advantage. You know, it's like like New Orleans doesn't have cold weather, but it's really hard to win there. So, you know, is it the dome air? You know, so it's like it's like you can create an excuse for, for everything, right? So it's like, yeah, is it the reason they win or lose? Or is it that they were a really good team, so they have home field advantage in the playoffs and they've got their crowd and there's all these things against you? I just don't think it's a – I don't think it's a viable excuse for teams. I think it's like, hey, man, you're a grown man. Uh, go out there and play in a football game and compete and win or lose based off of how you play. I'm curious, um, Whit, in terms of what is it like playing a playoff game with no fans or very few fans present? We're pulling up to the stadium. There's not a soul around the stadium. You know, there's nobody there. You pull up in the tunnel, you go and you walk out, you know, look around, and it's just completely empty. You go out for pregame warm-ups, completely empty. And that's why you have to tell, like, your friends at home, like, they're watching the game and they're hearing – these noises that the TV's putting through, but like when you're there at the stadium, it's just dead silence. Like, right. I mean, we're yelling like in TV timeouts in the side, like the sidelines, the two sidelines are like talking trash to each other. Like you can hear every word, you know, like it's, it's that quiet. I'll never forget. I tell people this all the time when we played Philly on the road to start the season earlier in the year, they didn't really do any of the music in between. They didn't have any of that going on. It, it was so quiet during the TV timeouts. I could hear the wind whistle in my helmet. Like it was, and I was just like, where am I? And what is going on? This is the strangest environment that I've ever played in an NFL football game. It's just, you just don't know what in the world's happening right now. Uh, it was, it's definitely really different. It's been a crazy year to say the least. So, so tell me this though, as you guys, as you guys being where you are in the playoffs where you're having to travel, not having to deal with the Lambeau crowd or something like that. I mean, if the elements are the only thing you have to deal with, that does seem that it does, and to some degree, play to your favor. Not Maybe not your favor, but it's not a disadvantage. I think it is one of those things that, you know, regardless if it's us, I just think in the NFL in general right now, these road teams, I don't know that there's an advantage to being the home team. It's just you better be assessing the game based off of who you actually think is going to win and not a team having to deal with crowd and noise. And I just don't think sometimes fans understand how difficult that is and, and what an impact it has on a football game. You know, with sure. speaking of advantages, we saw J.C. Treder, the president of the NFLPA, um, not too long ago, put out a statement basically saying that what this season has taught him, if not others, is that there isn't a need for an offseason based on the fact that everything was virtual this year, there was no on-field work, et cetera. I wonder from your perspective as a veteran in this league, I know you're a little biased, but would you agree Would you agree with him that this shows that maybe all that um, off-season work, on-field work, those sorts of things really isn't necessary to have a quality product? I think that there's a positive to allowing guys to come in the building and be able to work out and take care of themselves and do all of that. But I also think that at the same time, I don't know that I see a lot of value in the field work. I think that's the strange part to me that I don't quite get. I know what coaches think they're accomplishing with that stuff, but most of that helmet practice stuff is so irrelevant to what real football is like. You could really simplify all of this and say, hey, look, you know what, we're going to hire a strength staff and we're going to have people in the strength staff that know how to put guys through position drill specific things like in your conditioning, in your on-field work. And I don't really have to put you in an environment with 
other players on a field where you can get injured or do any of that. Let's just have you like in your optimal shape and your optimal build for what you need to do to do your position and function movements uh, when you report to camp. And, and I think that virtually I can meet with you. I can install things. I, I think this virtual world has really opened up things that I've always thought needed to be different. Like I always thought it was crazy on a Monday that, you know, like you go, you travel to wherever, let's say our week, you know, say you go to green Bay and win and, and you, you have this big travel, you go there, you play this game the next morning. It's like, I get, you want me to come work out and get the body movement and get some of that soreness out and those kind of things. Physically, that makes sense. Now, why I have to stay four more hours and watch the tape that like I'm playing info football. I, I know when I got beat or when I didn't do very well, you could easily tell me that over a virtual meeting or you know what, you can easily clip those things and not make me sit up there exhausted and tired and like, hey, man, I really don't want to talk about this right now. Because um, I, just, I just think it's one of those things. Coaches only know how to coach. And that's not an insult. That's just the truth. And so as much as we give them leniency, it's like some of these things, yeah, there's certain places they do it the right way. And there's certain places that they take it too far. You know, Whit, I, w- I wanted to ask you about a guy who, when you talk about, doesn't take a playoff and only knows one speed. Aaron Donald is just, I know you talk about it, you get asked about him all the time and whatnot, but oh my God. man, he's just such a special player. I just wonder from your standpoint, being with him every day, you know, what is it like? What do you see that just makes him different from everyone else? It's really that. It's, it's his ability to just compete, snap in and snap out in a way that's so different. I used to always say this, like, there's some other guys I've played in this league that I would say are really good defensive linemen or, or really good D tackles um, that, you know, just to forsake and not naming them. Some of them that I think, you know what, they're good players, but to me, it's kind of like they're always just playing the game, like to make that play that matters in the game. And then it's kind of like outside of that, they kind of just want to make a sack or they want to cause a sack fumble. And then they're kind of happy with their performance. Like, the, like that's kind of how they feel about the game. I've always said what to me makes AD so different is that he doesn't come into a game thinking, I hope I get a sack today. He comes into a game thinking, I'm going to wreck your life for 65 straight <laughs> like, like It's rare. And, and when I first got here and he was going through his contract negotiations, you know, we missed kind of the, the training camp, I believe it was, our first year. But when he gave him his first day and didn't get the contract, but they decided they were, you know, he came back, he reported – and they were going to start working on it again. Um, I'll never forget the first day watching him practice and seeing like every snap, whether it was a pra- whether it was a pass, a run, a boot, whatever it was, he was like the first player on the field to the football, no matter where it was on the field. And it's like he would destroy the O-lineman, get through the line, touch the quarterback, and sprint to wherever the ball was thrown and be – if he wasn't the corner covering the guy, he's the second defensive player to the ball. And it's just – Literally, unbel- I was like, man, a guy this good that plays with that kind of effort is just, you know, it, it's like you go ahead and just put a jacket on him because he's it, it's just you just don't find that. You don't find guys that have that kind of talent set, skill set, and then also play with the heart of somebody who has no chance to make it. It, it might be a – I don't want to overstep anything here, but he reminds me in his approach so much – of Junior Sale, who I got to cover for a long time in this league. Just guys who every play bring it, and then you think they're indestructible. So, like, when I saw him get hurt this weekend, I'm like, wait a minute, AD is hurt? You know, he, he 
No, because it's no, like the first time we've ever seen him get hurt. It was like the first yeah. time. I mean, his durability is amazing. Yeah, and I and I thought I thought to myself, man, if he's showing some pain, I can't imagine what that is because he right. doesn't show pain. You know, um, I, you know, for you guys as teammates, when you see that, do you go, oh, this must be serious if he's showing? I've never been so nervous as the, the the whatever 15 minutes that he was in the locker room. I'm literally like, what's going on right now? You know, um, <laughs> it's one of those things. Like, I was like, man, you know, you know, did somebody kill Superman? It's like, you know, it's like, what happened? Like, you're like, it's like your superhero in a movie when he's getting beat up. You know, it's like, oh, how can somebody beat up Batman? You know, and it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things that literally to guys, it's like, he's so on this high pedestal to his teammates of, of, of the competitor and just beast that he is play in and play out and just what a, just a good human and a good competitor and an elite player. He is guys look up to him so much that it's almost like when he's a little banged up, it's like, Oh my gosh, you know, and, and it, guys can't handle it. Everybody's just like, I, this doesn't make any sense, you know? And so it's uh he's a special guy, man, special player. Hey, wait, I just got to ask you this because you know I, I've I've admired you for years. I mean, so many things you did in Cincinnati and and out here. You coming back? Coming back next year, man? This season, um, coming into it, just because of the nature of really things going on with the cap and and everything going on with COVID and all of that, and what they thought it would do the salary cap. I knew that there might be some limitations on whether I could come back and and whether you know the team would be able to do it. Um, and so that's the only reason really this season that I've had a little bit of, all right, man, I mean, there may be a realistic chance that you're going to have to decide on it's less about coming back and it's more about, are you willing to go play somewhere else if that's what has to happen? Um, and so that's been more concerning to me than really whether I'd play. I, I think that this injury and missing some games and feeling as good as I do right now with the opportunity to, to be one of the first guys in quite some time to take a snap at 40 years old, uh, playing offensive line. I, I just think that would be such a cool, neat thing to get to do. And um, I, I feel like it's going to be something that knowing myself, uh, a desire like that, a, so much, a, a goal to accomplish, uh, I would be pretty pretty committed to. So I, I feel like with the family and the wife and everyone else, they're, they're on board. I, I feel like I'll be playing again in, in, in 2021, and, and uh, I'm excited about it. Well, we'd love to see it. You know, we, we talk so much football on here, but um, you're the Rams Walter Payton Man of the Year nominee. And Steve and our producer, Thomas Warren, know this better than I do in terms of, you know, the um, the uh, serving spoon. I've never been oh, yeah. to it. They know it up in L.A. And the contribution you made to help that place stay open during th these COVID times. One, I guess I just wanted to ask you what it means to you to actually be a nominee for the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award, and how much do players place on that versus any accomplishment they may have as a player on the field? Oh, man, I think it's tremendous. It's a, it's a tremendous honor, and, and uh, it's my third time now in L.A. being selected as it, and um, every single time I've tried to argue with Molly and them not to do it, and because uh, I, I just I, – I don't – I don't do well with recognition for things like that. Um, I, I'm very honored and humbled by it. Um, but I believe in my heart, like it's just the right thing that I'm doing. And so it's, it's not something that I feel like I have to be commended for or something. And it's also 
really cool to read the stories of all 32 guys every year. I mean, lots of those have been things that I've used for inspiration of programs that I've wanted to do, or I'd read their stories and get inspired. And I'm like sitting over here, I'm, I'm donating to all the other 32 guys that, you know, like, it's like, you know, it's like, man, I, I get so hyped up reading all this stuff. It's awesome. So yeah, I mean, moments like that, I, I think that you'll remember a lot of that more than you think when you're done playing uh, more so than just the football. Uh, obviously, to me, it's way more important being here in L.A. and being a part of this community and being part of uh, trying to be part of the positive part of it and, and make change that's positive change and impact that's positive impacts. Um, I've had some really special moments in just four years here. You know, last year uh, we started to deal with uh, at Christmas time doing stuff for homeless families uh, that my son really came up with the idea for. And, uh, man, it's one of the most special things I've ever gotten to be a part of. And, and uh, this year, uh, even with all this COVID stuff, we were able to go into downtown L.A. and do something to just keep our distance. And, uh, it, it was really special. Well, let us embarrass you for a minute because I want Steve to tell the story about the serving spoon since I'm not an L.A. guy. I want Steve to tell that story to our audience just so they can understand the importance of it. Well, first off, Whit is from Louisiana, so I know he knows who salmon croquettes are. So, because <laughs> so, I just I just got some because because you know I went guys for the for the family this weekend. So the Serving Spoon is a soul food restaurant. It does mainly breakfast type food in uh, in Inglewood. And so a couple weeks ago, I think it was the I think it was the day that you got your nomination for the Walter Payton Man of the Year. They put out a video. The owner she put out a video saying we're seventy five thousand dollars in the hole, and if we don't come up with this in like a week or two, we're going to get shut down because the COVID like people weren't weren't coming by and, and going to the restaurant. So I, Artis Twyman from the Rams says, hey, Steve, Witt just dropped 50 grand on him. And I'm just kind of like, wow. So Witt, and Witt, what about that? And Because it's funny because I went there Saturday, huge Rams sign on the counter saying that the Rams are a huge supporter of the serving spoon. I love it. That's awesome. You know, it, it was one of those things that um... – we were obviously planning, actually, the, some of the stuff we were doing with the homeless Christmas deal. And so Molly and Melissa, my wife, were talking during doing that, kind of planning how we're going to pull all that off and, and get some of the stuff done that we've been doing because we kind of are trying to create our own tradition of that with our family. And um, Melissa was on Twitter and saw the video that she posted and was just like, oh, my gosh, like, honey, you, you have to watch this video about the serving spoon. And we'd heard about it a bunch. Like, obviously, uh, Reggie Scott, our, our, our VP of medical director, he, is, he calls the training room the barbershop. So we sit we, we sit in there all the time as guys, and we talk about, yeah, obviously, it's, you know, you're tired and hungry and everything else in the facility. We talk about food. So, like, I've heard about the servings, but I never got a chance to go. But, they're, they're, you know, they're comparing it to Roscoe's, all this stuff. You know, they're arguing about, you know, you know, every week. It's like somebody brings up a new food place. We're arguing it's better about than about. Roscoe's. Exactly. And so a lot of the guys were saying that some of the trainers were saying that, that have been down there because they kind of go down there on our games and they'll go down and go grab some different food spots they hear about. And so they're having an argument about it. So I was like, man, I've heard of this place. Yeah. Like, you know, I just heard the guys talk about it last week. And uh, one of the guys was telling me I have to go there. So I watched the video and I'm like, you know, wow. And so Melissa, like, didn't even ask, like, hey, what do you think we should do? She texts Molly and she's like, Molly, we're being a part of this. Like, let's do it. And so they're like, you know, think about Andrew, what you want to do. And so I get on there and I read, you know, I'm like reading about it and I go check their deal. And it says, all right, look, we, you know, the 75,000, obviously, but they're at 25,000. And so I was like, you know what? 
like if I'm gonna get involved in this and just hearing her heart and, and really how special it was to her, uh, not just her restaurant and the food, but the ability to sit down with people in her community and just, it, it really made me realize if I'm gonna get involved with this, I wanna take all her thoughts and worries and concerns away. So to me, it was like, if it's 25,000 right now, I'm gonna donate the other 50 so that she hits the 75 she wanted. And then every other person that reach out, reaches out to spread some love and, and to want to be a part of it in that community to help her, like that's just stuff on top. And that just that just exceeds any expectation that she thought she'd get. And so to me, that's what was important to do. And uh, everybody was on board and we got a chance, my wife and I, to call her uh, on, a, on a speakerphone. And, and, and it was really, I mean, it was just an awesome moment. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been really cool just it, it, I'll tell you what else has been special about it is the next day I didn't realize how many athletes just from LA, like what a big deal this was to them. Like I had so many people reach out to me that I'm like, man, I, I had no idea that you would have known, you know, this, but they're just they even heard about me doing this, but just reaching out and calling me and everything else. Like, man, I love that place. And I love to go there when I'm in town. And uh, it was really cool to hear how special, that venue is to people and, and uh, how legit it really was to them as, as a place that they feel like they're at home when they get a chance to go to. Um, I, I thought the whole thing, man, turned out way more special than I ever would have thought of and just happy to be able to be there and, and humbling to be able to be there to help them. And quickly, let me, let me stop for a minute. I'm going to embarrass him a little bit more because that's just one of the many gestures. I mean, look, he's since he came here, he's been spending time down at Watts, uh, with a lot of kids at schools there, with the, the youth sports programs there. You've gotten really involved with that. During the forest fires and the wildfires here, you took a game check and you donated it to the families of the, of the men and women involved in the fire rescue. I mean, with there's nothing that you don't have your hands in, and, and that's why you're so special. And you've heard, it, heard me say it before. Jim knows this. You and Frank Gore are probably the two most respected players in the NFL by your peers that we know and and i, and I think that's and, and, and i think that's something else is yeah and larry fitzgerald that to me is is just as warm we hear people talk about like who's that dude and they're like uh you know frank and larry and, and andrew i mean i i think that says an awful lot as well yeah man that's humbling it's uh it's been awesome i, I think that over the last two years really in my career um that's been one of the coolest parts to me of playing football um has been really, as I've told my wife multiple times, is, is it's almost like as people kind of realize maybe this is the end for you or not, they don't know, uh, you get more of like how they really feel. And so after games, just having guys I have no clue that I have any kind of like intertwined with in life, being like, man, you know what, like when I was in high school, I read a story about how you approached, you know, this family, did this form in Cincinnati or, you know, or this family in Louisiana, this young kid that I helped out that died playing football. It, like I read this story about that and like, it just, it like, you have, I looked up for you for forever for that. You know what I'm like, man, I, okay. Now I got to figure out who this kid is, like where he's from, like his school he played at. It's like hearing these stories that you like, you kind of take for granted. And then you realize like, man, like this guy's telling me like he's playing NFL football because I like helped inspire him to be great at something, you know, like, some of those moments have been things that that'll be what I'll remember more than anything else. And it's, it's amazing how they tell you, like when you just do things for other people and, and make things less about yourself, it's amazing how much you get rewarded from it, just from, in, from the heart and from the soul, from people. And uh, that's been really cool over the last couple of years to hear from guys.
I think that's so awesome. That's so awesome. awesome. Yeah. Well, we, hey, man, we know you. We know you got some game planning to do. We we know Zedaria Smith. He probably, he probably has Zedarius film with Zedaria Smith, like right above his, uh, you know, yeah. on the second screen here. I gotta, go, I gotta go dip my clothes in some ice water and put them back on so I can sit around in it all week. <laughs> you know, my practice gear in the cold tub. You know, wear it out for walkthroughs. Unfortunately, I think it's gonna be like in the 80s this week, so it's gonna be tough. It's to, gonna be blazing uh, hot in LA. It is. It's gonna, be, it's gonna be tough to simulate 27 when it's 87 outside, but uh, we'll do our best. Let me say this real quick before Whit goes to anyone who has covered the NFL for an extended period of time knows that if you ever walk into a locker room and you really want to know what's going on or you really want to have an intelligent and lightful conversation, you go find the offensive lineman because people always talk about they're the big hogs and this that, and the other. I will say, and I think Steve will back me up on this. Offensive linemen are the best interview yeah. on a football team in general. So, Whit, you just proved it. You backed it up here. So, <laughs> I appreciate you for that. Hey, thank you so much. That's really kind. The big All fellas right, will hey, appreciate that. You know? Hey, yeah, be sure to spread the word. Make sure they check you out. Make sure they stay check you out on the podcast too. Hey, Whit, best of luck to you and the guys this week. Really appreciate you spending some time with us. Hey, thank y'all so much. I it was enjoyed it, and uh, always an honor and a pleasure, man. Look, I told all you young journalists that you want to go and find that corner of the locker room where the offensive linemen are because they are truly some of the realest guys you're going to find on an NFL team. And I think Andrew Whitworth just confirmed that. So, Steve, um, just a great guy, you know, uh, and just so insightful. And um, that's why I always find myself over with the offensive linemen, you know, Andrew Whitworth. He, he, he showed you why, you know, he just told us why just, tr just a tremendous, tremendous asset to not only the Rams, but the NFL. Well, look, Jim, we needed that, right? Cause we came in here as you heard at the beginning of this podcast, we were hot, man. We were hot over some of the shenanigans and the bull stuff that started and having a conversation with wit, especially the way it ended where, you know, he, he talked about some of the great things he did and how rewarding that is to him to give, to help others. And what was really touching is when he said he wanted to get involved with the homeless situation in L.A. And how he said it was his son's idea. I mean, think about that. We're both parents. If our kids gave us something where they're thinking that globally and, and, and that humanely, that means he's doing something right. And so I, I'm, I'm sure he felt that way. Don't forget the missus. And the missus. Well, Mrs. Whitworth is it. Yes, sir. She, she, hey, she she's done. She has done an awful lot. I've I've known the Wits for a while. Hey, here's something that was was kind of cool about the Whitworth. There's a, there was a restaurant. I don't know if it's still in existence in Cincinnati. I don't know if you've ever eaten. It's called the Precinct. It's it's an old police uh -huh. station, which is now a big steakhouse. There's a whole section on there. The menu is named after the athletes or the coaches, whatever in town. And they had a big porterhouse steak there called the Whitworth once. I, I I do not indulge like that that heavily in a porterhouse, so I did not get it. Plus, I would feel kind of crazy eating something named after Andrew. But <laughs> <laughs> but that was that was kind of a cool tale. Well, hey Jim, we're gonna go we're gonna button this up because uh, a little bit later in the week, why don't you tell Jim? You you tell who we're gonna have on here. This could be a good one. Well, we're, we're going to have on, you know, we've had a few wide receivers on this show and, and they all bring something. But this young man, I'm really interested in talking to just because 
he just had a phenomenal rookie season. And that's Justin Jefferson of the Minnesota Vikings. And his story to me is just, again, confirmation of how the scouting of NFL players is not an exact science. Because when you see what he did this year and just how polished he was, how professional he was, all of those things, it makes no sense to some degree that he was not the first wide receiver off the board, just in terms of pure production. So um, I'm really looking forward to that conversation. And as we get out of here, Steve and I, we always leave it on this. You know, we appreciate you all listening. We appreciate you subscribing. Leave us your comments, your thoughts, what you want to hear, who you want to hear from, what you want to hear about, because that way we can give you more of what you're funking for. I hear you. And hey, now that we're getting JJ on after Whitworth, also it's LSU week here. We've got two scoops of the of the Bayou Bengals. Huddle Flow Podcast. Wow, that must be a first. All right, for Jim Trotter, our producer Thomas Warren on the ones and twos. I'm Steve Weitz. We are the Howard Mob, and we are out. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.